welcome back to another episode of Anabaptist Perspectives. I'm here with Nathan Zook. We're in Washington, D.C., just pretty close here to your house. You live here. Um, you're also a pastor in a church up in Baltimore. Um, U.S. Capitol is right here, right in the heart of the American Capitol. Now, one question I have for you is, how have the Anabaptists provided a unique perspective, especially historically, when it comes to issues of, quote, races or different, different ethnicities here in America? Mm-hmm. Probably the, the, one of the earliest and most famous examples would be in 1688. There were three uh, Mennonites who came to the so-called New World. Uh, they were settled near Germantown in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. and uh, there was no ordained Mennonite minister or bishop mm. here in the colonies, and so they began attending the local Quaker fellowship or friends meeting. Mm-hmm. And so they joined up with a pietist uh, individual, and they articulated a petition against slavery mm-hmm. to the local meeting. This is not a political petition. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a petition to the local congregation where they were worshiping in Germantown. Mm-hmm. And is a handwritten document, uh, which is still on display at one of the Quaker colleges in Pennsylvania. And they articulated the idea that humans are uh, created by God mm-hmm. and that it would be that slavery was wrong on so many levels, including uh, dividing hmm. the sacred institution of marriage, dividing husbands from wives mm-hmm. as their owners would take them into different states and so forth. Mm-hmm. And so um, really a strong call to fellow Christians not, mm-hmm. to, uh, not to endorse slavery. And that letter went to the larger meeting in Philadelphia that later went to uh, London, we believe. It's the first known written document against slavery in the world. Wow. Also. So it's, it's a key uh, well, factor. It's like 90 years give or take before the founding of America, before the Declaration of Independence. Right. right. Wow, that's yeah. a long time yeah. ago. So, yeah. So that, yeah, definitely progressive for their time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How influential that document became, I wanna, we don't want to overstate men and mm. influence in the abolitionist movement, but that was an mm. early articulation that slavery is not, not mm. right. Um, there were, uh, I've tried to research and find this, uh, to my knowledge, there were no Mennonites in good standing of a congregation in this continent that owned slaves. Uh, There was one man who came from Germany as a Mennonite, uh, never joined the church here, uh, was believed to have owned a slave, Mm -hmm. um, but did not become affiliated with the local Mennonite church once he moved here. Mm -hmm. So it does seem like um, Mennonites were able to remove themselves from that Mm -hmm. institution, which was pretty widespread among almost all other denominations in the New World. So let's go through some American history then. How have Mennonites expressed themselves when it came to issues of slavery, different um, ethnicities, how they're treated? I'm thinking, you know, before the Civil War, what was, you know, up to that point, and then the Reconstruction period, um, you have the Civil Rights Movement of the 20th century. Kind of walk us through that that journey. So, I mean, there's always going to be exceptions. You know, Mennonite individuals who go astray or drift into the, you know, practices of the society around them. But for the most part, Mennonites uh, were pretty consistent in Mm -hmm. definitely not owning slaves, but also in trying to love people on both sides, whether the slave owners, slaveholders, Mm -hmm. or the slaves themselves. I was reading recently a a case of a uh, congregation, a district, a Mennonite district in Virginia, that where some of the local Mennonites would assist their plantation neighbors 
of other denominations with getting in the crops, you know, harvesting mm. and so forth. And so in return, some of those plantation owners would send their slaves to help out with Mennonite farms. Mm. And so Mennonites in this one district determined that they would pay for that labor, even though they oh, it was wow. being reciprocal. They you know volunteered for the slave owner mm. and they would help them, but they were going to pay. But they were going to pay the slaves uh, the money. And so it was an individual way to love their neighbor. Mm. They didn't owe anything to the plantation owner because they'd already worked on their field mm. themselves, but they were going to pay the slaves as having dignity as human beings. And I think that was a really strong statement of how, you know, Mennonites mm. may not be, they weren't very active, they weren't very loud mm -hmm. in the, uh, in the uh, abolitionist movement, like maybe mm -hmm. Quakers were, but Mennonites were trying to find creative ways to stand up for mm -hmm. the, um, truth of loving their neighbor mm -hmm. as themselves and to extend human dignity to other other humans mm -hmm. um, we are this is being filmed in the uh, museum of the bible and down the basement level there is a bible put together by british slaveholders in the caribbean and it shows that they, they took out all chapters in the bible all passages that had anything to do with liberation with freedom Whoa. the book of exodus is missing and so forth and Whoa. so um Mennonites are not ones to chop up their Bibles like that. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, <clears throat> if we see that God is talking about liberation in Exodus, he's talking mm -hmm. about um, obeying our masters in, in Philemon, you know, there's, there's ways to address these issues without getting politically mm -hmm. involved. Mm -hmm. um, Paul talks to the slaveholder Philemon and asks him to you know, welcome his escaped slave back into fellowship. Mm -hmm. And so there's ways to in a quiet manner, but yet a loving, strong manner to mm -hmm. to love both sides in these mm -hmm. kinds of issues, even whether it's the abuser, the oppressor, mm -hmm. or whether it's the person being oppressed. Yeah, and so do we see that that kind of mindset carrying further into history? You know, further along. Yeah, I'm thinking especially the last century, where sure. you know the civil rights movement and things. Was there any involvement there from uh, the Mennonites? Th there was. Uh, there was, yeah, there were definitely Mennonites who were involved in various elements of the civil rights movement, but there were also those who took a very quiet uh, approach as well. And I was reading about, a, um, it, also in Mississippi, a group of rural northern Mennonites who went to help set up some camps, mm -hmm. uh, sort of outdoors camps to help youth and so forth. And uh, a Camp Landon in particular was a place where the staff were trying to invite you know, blacks and whites to be mm. part of their of their uh, campgrounds mm. and so forth. And so mm -hmm. the staff from this place, uh, on a voluntary, the voluntary service workers went out one uh, day to a local hospital to sing, and they were singing in the different wards. And the uh, as the story goes, the they were in the main ward with where the whites were located. And then all of a sudden one of the nurses said, "Hey, what happened to that group? They just disappeared. Did they leave already?" And the other nurse said, "No, they went into the black wards to sing." And that was unusual. Ah, yeah. And she said, well, yeah. they're Mennonites. They, they don't take a side on the racial divides. And that's, hmm. a, that's a quiet testament that, you know, we're not protesting, we're not marching, but we're, we're actually here to say mm -hmm. we love them as equal mm -hmm. with the others. Mm -hmm. And they actually went there with the idea they would help assist in um, needy African-American communities. Wow. But they realized that uh, they also needed to show love to the, the poor whites in the area, too. So they were trying to reach yeah. out to both sides in the, uh, in the racial categories. So historically and, and currently, uh, Anabaptist people have not 
gotten politically involved. I mean, as a general rule. So then we have cases like you know writing petitions and and things like that would feel maybe foreign to us. What are some ways that Anabaptists were able to to stand up mm -hmm. against these things? I think uh, on one hand to exemplify in their churches that they don't have to be segregated. Uh, um, when some of the early Anabaptist movements began reaching out in, in uh, you know, communities, Native American communities or black communities, uh, they would set up several church, separate churches for that group. Mm -hmm. And then they began, maybe began saying, hey, you know, we're all equal in Christ. Um, mm -hmm. We should all be worshiping together. And so taking that stance, uh, you know, decades before Martin Luther King Jr. mentioned that Sunday is the most segregated day of the week, uh, <laughs> yeah. Mennonites were already moving in the direction of we were going to be worshiping together as fellow brothers and sisters. And they were ordaining African-American ministers, they were um, ordaining Native American ministers, <clears throat> and trying to emphasize that in the church we're all equal. We can be a refuge from the mm -hmm. racial tensions around us. And uh, there's always exceptions. There's definitely Mennonites who, you know, did not uh, go that route and did mm -hmm. not want to uh, integrate their Bible studies and so forth. But um, and the, the, the real testimony is that we can be people who, who show love even when society is looking down on that. Mm -hmm. And they're not following the trends of society. When society moves in a more progressive direction, that's not when we take our cues. We mm -hmm. take our cues from the scripture. We will be mm -hmm. probably at the forefront of having an integrated congregation. And I think that Mennonites have, Anabaptists in general, have a reputation for helping out in disaster relief and so forth mm -hmm. in areas that may not be among the most powerful or trying to set their sights on ingratiating themselves with people who are wealthy or powerful, but helping those who mm -hmm. are our neighbors and need our help. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about loving your neighbor. Right. No matter who that neighbor exactly. might be. And, and acknowledging that that neighbor is every bit as equal in God's eyes, every bit as um, loved by God. I mean, and God talks in the, uh, I didn't look up the scripture before I came here, but um, he mentions the Assyrians are mine, the Egyptians are mine, and yeah. these are people I've created too, just like the people of Israel. Mm -hmm. And so as you move into you know, our our day and age, just like whatever ethnicity or race um, mm -hmm. we are part of, uh, God loves the others just like just like He loves us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In recent years here in, in America, racial tension seems to be very high, and that could be um, tempting to try to get involved politically or to vote or to really be vocal about our position, our perspective. How would what what would you say to churches or, or individuals that are really wrestling with this? How can they have their voice but still hold true to these Anabaptist values? Right. Uh, so on one hand, we need to consider that um, are we linking ourselves up in partnership with those who are using unloving methods to get their goals accomplished? Ooh. And uh, <clears throat> a couple years ago, there were riots in Baltimore based on police brutality allegations. And so that Sunday, I was trying to, uh, I was trying to put together my sermon for that Sunday, and I something along the lines of, you know, oppression and, and you know, why people are crying out uh, in society. But every scripture I kept coming across was about, you know, being orderly and about um, oh, wow. being people who are, are, you know, are engaged in love. And so not being among those who are complainers or riotous and so forth. Mm. So I couldn't find any, um, you know, it was hard to sympathize on one hand with the rioters. On the other hand, scripturally, yeah, rioting is not what mm -hmm. we're called to do. On the other hand, though, we are called in Isaiah 
to uh, break the yoke of oppression mm -hmm. and to you know our fast that we have chosen is it not to the fast that God has chosen is it not just to remove ourselves from eating or is it to help those who are in need hmm. and oppressed and so emphasize understanding trying to sympathize with those who don't see society as privileging mm -hmm. their, their race or ethnicity mm -hmm. and maybe not definitely not adopting uh, those radical methods but also mm -hmm. emphasizing and listening to them and realizing that there is a, a, a real pain here Mm -hmm. And how can we, as as, I think as the Anabaptists, we can love those who are um, being oppressed, but we can also love the oppressor. And that's where it gets very touchy. Uh, we might be seen as yeah. very controversial. We might be seen as too close to the establishment if we don't, you know, <laughs> protest on the streets. On the other hand, we can be seen as um, too disorderly if we remove mm -hmm. ourselves from mm -hmm. it. So, but we, we're not to be focused on maybe what people think about us. We're to be focused on what is... Christ mm -hmm. calls us to do? How would Christ respond? And so he was living mm -hmm. in a very oppressive society where mm -hmm. the Jewish people were being oppressed by the Romans. There was no question. It was one of the most oppressive yeah. periods or empires at that time for the Jewish people. And so he's not calling out the Roman Empire for mm -hmm. being oppressive. And he's also showing love to people who, in his own quiet way, were uh, rejected by others, like the Samaritan woman mm -hmm. and so forth, and the Canaanite woman. Who came to him, and so uh, you know, following Christ means we will be loving everybody involved. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe not in the way that they want us to. Maybe not <laughs> in the way that they feel yeah. we should respond, but still being approachable and loving. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And going back to that, there, all of these people are your neighbor, right? And we all have a common ancestor in Noah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. There, yeah. There's. Uh, there's no question that we are all part of God's human family, the human family that he created, the, the one human race. And, uh, and so I think um, Anabaptists have been wise to, when they've tried to refrain from getting too caught up in the scientific categorizations of people. Hmm. And, uh, and if we can avoid stereotyping people and avoid um, making assumptions or profiling people because of their perceived physical appearance, I think that's really strong. Mm -hmm. testimony we can have to others that we will not um, hang out with people just because they're different from us but that we're not avoiding hanging out with anybody. Our birthday parties, our fellowship meals, our dinner tables will be open to people who in many cases don't look like us mm -hmm. and um, we can be that testimony to everybody mm -hmm. in, a very, in our very own loving quiet way through showing hospitality. Mm -hmm. It can be a radical uh, stance in some in some areas and that's something you know i think all of us could do that Absolutely. you know yeah. um, you don't have to be especially trained or anything just no. be hospitable and that's Absolutely. that's really neat yeah. and you raised a great point uh, a number of years ago here in dc i was taking a group of um bible study uh, bible school volunteers around mm -hmm. the city and we were about to get on the metro and a group of teenagers were sitting on the grass near the sidewalk there as we were walking and our group, if you look at us, we all were of European descent. <laughs> yeah. And the people, the, the teenagers there, uh, made some comments that were racially tinged comments, uh, prejudicial comments against mm -hmm. us. And so I heard what they said, I knew what they said, and because I knew the local culture, I sort of had my guard up, wanted mm -hmm. to protect my group you know, from hate or prejudice. Mm -hmm. But the people I was with, 
they didn't know what the teenagers had said. They didn't understand what they had, the comments they had made. And they smiled. They showed love. They smiled and said, hey, how are you doing? And they began talking to them. And a, and a beautiful interaction took place. Really? Those teenagers wow. began responding very positively to that. Mm-hmm. Whereas if they had been trained or orientated <laughs> about the, uh, the words being used, they might be like me and put up their guard. Instead, mm-hmm. uh, they just showed a genuine love. And it, ha- it turned out to be a beautiful interaction instead of a, mm-hmm. a potentially tense interaction. And oh, so I think, I think, you know, just because we don't understand a local dialect or language or mm-hmm. comment, um, we just keep being genuine and keep being authentic lovers of, of other yeah. things. And, uh, yeah. and that, that can be a real testimony. So last question here, but what are steps that believers, followers of Jesus can take in a country like the United States where there is still a lot of unrest over you know, different groups of people what, how can how can we help bring peace to that situation? I think I think a big part of it is um, just really attempting to be very careful when we talk that we are not emphasizing and highlighting race and racial characteristics uh, yeah. in our in our jokes and our stories. I mean, there's so many times we'll tell a story about I saw this person and we we add to it mm-hmm. their race. And race is a beautiful, th- you know, our, our physical characteristics are beautiful things mm-hmm. created for us by God. But we don't have to always make that the central focus of the story. Mm-hmm. Because then it becomes the idea that because of that person's ethnicity, therefore that's why they act in this way. And that's in many cases yeah. not the case. Yeah. And you always find exceptions in any situation. So I think um, being very careful not to highlight that. I did an experiment with my son, my oldest son, as I worked with my other children. But my oldest son, I was, I was very careful in his first seven years of life not to ever mention a person's ethnicity around him. And so um, it, it, it worked. It was it, it, interesting. He, he really did not talk about people in terms of their ethnicity. One mm-hmm. time we were playing with these little Fisher-Price toys. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they're like wooden bodies and wooden heads. And the, the head was one color, the body a different color. And so he says, hey, can you pass me the black man. So I looked at the characters and the only person with the face that was darker than the rest was next to him. So I looked around and I saw a man, a little figure next to me uh, with what I would call a white or pale face and a black suit, a black body. And so I passed that black uh, yeah, clothing. So I passed that to him. He said, thank you. <laughs> no I said, you. So I looked to the man that had a darker face and said, can you pass me the green man because he had a green suit. He said, sure, he passed me that man. Wow. He was judging people by their, by their uh, clothing. And so uh, I thought that's, you know, hmm. that's really fascinating because I focus so much on maybe the physical characteristics mm-hmm. when in reality our clothing changes and who we are is more about who we are inside, not about the mm-hmm. physical you know, appearance and so forth. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we don't have to use those descriptors. Another thing I was, as a step, uh, getting back to that, mm-hmm. a step we can take, I think, is to put ourselves in situations where we are in the minority. Mm-hmm. And that was a, that's been a big part of my life. I grew up in a neighborhood the first 18 years of my life. And actually, currently, I live in a neighborhood where I'm a racial minority. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, my first church that I attended when I was... Uh, Born. This was not my choice. My parents had, had chosen that church, but my pastor was African American. Um, the other, uh, most of the people other than our family were African American or Latino. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, p- 
putting ourselves voluntarily in those kinds of situations, mm-hmm. I think, can be good because so often we as Americans expect diversity to happen by other people adopting our culture and fitting in with us. And so we'll, them, we'll be in the majority. We feel comfortable when we're in the majority and then they can just come visit us. Mm-hmm. But what if we put ourselves in the situation where we are in the minority and mm-hmm. we go live among people or visit in their homes or, you know, so there's, mm-hmm. there's that aspect I think is really um, important without, without trying to, um, you know, overdo uh, this. I think it's, it's a way to... Um, to have a, let people know genuinely that you're, you care about them mm-hmm. and uh, you have a comfort level that you don't have to always be in the majority. Mm-hmm. So that's the last question I had. Do you okay. have anything else you want to add? One thing, I th- uh, getting back to the early, how, how Mennonites or Anabaptists have viewed race, uh, one thing that keeps coming up again and again in the historical mm-hmm. books on segregation and integration and so forth was that a big reason for all of society, not all of white society, not just Mennonites, mm. but to oppose integration was because there was a fear of um, intermarriage, racial intermarriage. Oh, mm-hmm. And uh, as I've talked in churches, um, through Bible schools or in sermons on racial relations, one thing that comes up again and again is we like the idea of they're all equal, we're all one mm. in Christ, but the intermarriage issue is something that people have a, a little more difficulty with, whether mm-hmm. Mennonites or or not. Mm-hmm. And I think we're moving past that as a church, but there's been some real pain in the past for people who have joined mm-hmm. the church. They are they were following Christ. They're following Mennonite guidelines, mm-hmm. and um, people say, you know what, we don't want our children to be in the same youth group or marry you because of the days you're marrying you and so forth. Biblically, there's nothing wrong with intermarriage. Um, the only time intermarriage is talked about in a bad way was married idol worshippers, or you know, in the Bible. Wow. And in Christ's line, we see a lot of you know intermarriage. You could say with Ruth and mm-hmm. and others that came into that. Um, so that's one thing that is very controversial, or has been controversial, maybe more so in the past than just today. But we have to mm-hmm. be sensitive to the fact that some people I've heard people say we're reluctant to have our children um, be raised in a church because who will marry them? Wow, and uh, and so if that's the impression we're giving off, Ooh. I don't think it's right to make a statement and marry somebody mm. just to make a statement. Um, but we have to be careful that uh, we are not saying this is that a loving relationship uh, between people who are committed to Christ, committed to His mm. church, and following the church and their guidelines that this is not a disqualifying factor. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing and for for taking the, it's kind of a lightning rod of a topic, but I think you you broke it down really well and given us a lot to think about. For more information about Anabaptist Perspectives, to read our blog, to donate, and to see videos of the conversations you hear on this podcast, visit anabaptistperspectives.org. We'd love to hear from our audience, so leave your feedback in the comments for this podcast or send us a message through our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Anabaptist Perspectives.